Folks, just a word of explanation. Sometimes it's difficult to find speakers for a long weekend when lots of folk are away. (laughs) And David rang and he said, are you available? And I said, yes, I am available. Here we are. Obadiah, his name means servant of the Lord. That's what prophets were. Servants of the Lord and their particular task was to take the words of God and speak them to people and to nations. The prophets in the Old Testament... Some of the longer ones like Isaiah and Ezekiel and then a string of other ones that are much smaller. We call them the major and minor prophets just on the basis of the size of their books that are reserved for us, preserved for us. They make up about one third of the Old Testament. Now of course they were written by different people at different times about different people and nations but there are actually three common themes that run through them all. They all speak about God but in particular about his sovereignty, about his justice and about his triumph. And because Obadiah is such a little book we can actually identify those three themes in a little book more easily than we can in some of the larger ones. And so we're actually going to use Obadiah as a model for all of those other ones. The same themes run through them all. Now this little book... It's only got 21 verses and uh, it does serve as a model to give us an insight, an introduction to the other books in the prophets but its particular interest is a message that was given to the nation of Edom. The nation of Edom. Now where was that nation of Edom. Now if we begin with uh, the Middle East as we know it today, the Mediterranean Sea and then we go round Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Edom was actually nestled there at the bottom of Israel below the Dead Sea on the way down to the most southern city of Israel, which is Elat. Some of you have visited a city in that region of biblical Edom, the city of Petra. Now, the people of Israel were the descendants of Jacob. And the people of Edom were the descendants of his twin brother, Esau. And uh, 
Jacob decided to follow God's ways. Sometimes he didn't do that very well but that was his choice. But Esau chose to go a different way, to go his own way. And in Genesis 36 and verse 8 we see that Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir which became Edom. Seir was the old name and it became Edom. Now that was about 1900 BC. Now where does Obadiah fit in the pattern of things? Now actually we're not told but there are certain things that he writes about and there are certain clues from other parts of scripture which bring us to the possibility, even the probability that Obadiah lived in the time when the Babylonians were the dominant world power of their day. Their empire had begun over at Babylon and it had spread westwards following those major rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then at a certain point it started to go south and eventually they came to Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. They overwhelmed Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem. And tens of thousands of the people were taken as exiles following that red dotted line on the map they travelled back to Babylon and found themselves under the control of a pagan king. They were very sad days. Not everybody was taken to Babylon. Some remained in Judah and it seems that Obadiah was one of them. Now Edom of course is just below Judah and Jerusalem. They were the southern neighbours. Now what do they think when these things are happening? If the Babylonian Empire has spread like that and they've now reached Judah, who's likely to be next? And it seems that the Edomites were watching here wondering what was going to happen. But there's an interesting verse that's found in Psalm 137. The psalm was written by one of those exiled people that found themselves in Babylon. And he begins the psalm by saying, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. Sad time for them. They'd lost their land, lost their king, lost their temple. But when he gets to verse 7, he says, Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Now that was in the year 586 BC. What did the Edomites do on that day? Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Now, in, in one sense you can see, well, perhaps they've decided that the Babylonians are the stronger ones here 
If we're going to be next in the extension of their empire, we better go with the strength. Even though the people of Judah who had suffered were their own blood brethren. If you travel down south from the Dead Sea and then you look out to the east, you see the mountains of Edom. They're rugged mountains, rocky mountains, uninviting mountains. And uh, if you actually trek in to those ranges, uh, they actually extend now for about 170 kilometres north-south and perhaps uh, 60 or 70 kilometres wide, range upon range. Down in the valleys there are dry sandy riverbeds, sparse uh, bushes, bushes and trees, uh, very little life to be seen. It's rugged country. The highest peaks reach to about 1,200 metres. If you drive through, you are just overwhelmed by the dominance of these rugged, inhospitable peaks. When you get up towards Petra, it would seem that one of those rugged peaks has actually split right down the middle from top to bottom and it's opened up like it's a pathway. And you walk along that pathway and, and you just look up through from this great chasm, hundreds of feet, many metres, and the tops of those peaks seem to be up in the clouds. And it gives access into the next valley. And when you get into the next valley, there you see how the people lived in that community. They carved their houses out of the vertical rocks that they found. Shelters for themselves, shelters for their stock, any other sort of shelters they needed were carved out of the rocks and there they lived. Now in one sense they uh, found that a very difficult existence. But in another sense they prided themselves in their security. It was very easy to defend themselves. It was very difficult for an aggressive neighbour to try and overtake their territory. And before we actually get to the text, there are just a few significant phrases that Obadiah uses that we might watch out for. Now the first one is the name that he chooses for God. Remember he is servant of the Lord. He chooses that name for God, the Lord, Lord spelt in capital letters, and seven times it appears in the 21 verses. On average, every third verse he's talking about the Lord. But what's the significance of the name? It's the special name by which God's people could refer to him. And in their minds, when they used that name, it reminded them that God was a God committed to people, to his people. He formalised that commitment in the terms of the covenants and he promised them that if they obeyed him they would be blessed. 
But if they didn't obey him, there would be trouble. He was a God who could be depended on. He kept his word. What he said, he did. He was their God. They were his people. This is the God that Obadiah spoke about. But then we see that the name Edom is mentioned. Well, of course we'd expect that because he's got a message for them. He conveys to them the words of the Lord. But his message we find actually stretches beyond Edom to nations, the nations. He's probably thinking of those nations around Edom that we mentioned when we looked at the map. Now isn't it interesting that those very same areas of the world still make our news every day? Syria, Jordan, Egypt. Then he mentions Esau's mountains or the mountains of Esau. Now we understand why. Having seen those photos, that's the sort of country it was. Mountainous country. And then we look for this interesting little phrase, that day and the day. And this little phrase occurs ten times. On average, every second verse is about a day. That day. Or the day. Now as we go through we'll try and work out what day that might have been. So significant phrases that help us understand his message to the Edomites. Now Obadiah's message, how do we summarise it? Well we'll use those same three headings that we mentioned before. This time we substitute the name for God that Obadiah has chosen to use. Firstly, the Lord's sovereignty. Then, the Lord's justice. And thirdly, the Lord's triumph. That's the underlying message that comes from Obadiah. But is also found in all the other prophetic books. God has things to say and do and be and they are relevant to us. Well, we begin with the Lord's sovereignty. Now take a moment to look at verse 1 in your Bibles. Page 914 in the Church Bibles. Those listening to the podcast, take a moment to get your Bible and open at the book of Obadiah, verse 1. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have a message from the Lord. Now actually this might have been a message that came in a more general way to a number of prophets. But our purpose here is to note the sovereignty of God. It is the Lord who is speaking. The Lord is going to take action. The Lord knows what's going on. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her, that is against Edom, for battle. This doesn't look good rather threatening situation. But it is God who is sovereign. 
He rules. He determines what is going to happen. Verse 1. Go down now to verse 15. Not only is God sovereign over Edom, but here we find that the day of the Lord is actually near. Now there's that little reference to the day. The day. The day of the Lord. God chooses certain days. And as we go through scripture and we find the repetition of this little phrase, we find that these are days when God acts in human history in rather dramatic ways. So here's the first reference in the book of Obadiah. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. Oh, not only Edom, but all those other nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. It is an amazing thing that at creation God gave human beings the privilege of choice. We were able to choose. We are still able to choose. We may choose like Jacob to follow the ways of God or we may choose like Esau to go our own way. God gave us the privilege of choice. Oh, but with the privilege comes the responsibility of how we choose. And here Obadiah reminds us, the day of the Lord is near for all nations and as you have done it will be done to you. And your deeds, however you chose, will return upon your own head. So God had a message for Edom, but it begins to reach out beyond Edom to other nations as well. God is sovereign. Now thirdly, God's sovereignty is actually able to bring good out of evil. And in verse 21, the last verse of the little tract, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. What about those nations that were going to make war against Edom? You see, the kingdom's not going to be theirs. Whoever and however... God's purposes are fulfilled. It's God's kingdom that's being established. He is sovereign. He does rule. He does keep his word. He determines history. And often through what we see as events in history are really the outworking of God's purposes who determines history, the Lord's sovereignty. We move on then to the Lord's justice. Now here we look at verses 2 to 4. And as Obadiah speaks to the people, he says that these words, See, God is saying, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Well, it wasn't a very big country to start with, was it? There it was, just nestled down there below the Dead Sea. 
But if it was small then, it's going to be smaller. Now why? Why is God taking this kind of rather severe action? Isn't he a God of love? Listen, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks. We saw that. That's how they lived. And make your home on the heights and say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? We live up here in this safe and secure place. What enemy can get us? We can defend ourselves. We're okay. But are they? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You see, we are responsible for what we do. And God speaks here and says, I will bring you down. You have chosen to go your own way. God humbles the proud. But there's another aspect as we go on to verses 5 to 9. God's justice, the Lord's justice destroys the wicked. Now Obadiah paints two pictures here, one of thieves or robbers robbing your house. The other one is a contract team of grape pickers who come to pick your grapes when they are ripe. First about the thieves. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? They only want the telly, they only want the mobile phone, they only want the computer, they leave the other things. And then Obadiah puts in this little, oh, Edom, if only you knew what's going to happen to you. And then the grape pickers, when they come, they pick most of the grapes and that's what they're engaged to do. But they did leave some for needy folk in the local community. But you people of Edom, you descendants of Esau, you're going to be absolutely ransacked. There'll be nothing left for you or anybody else. And then your allies will turn against you. Your friends will deceive you. Those who share meals with you will actually betray you. And you'll be dumb enough not to know what's going on. God destroys the wicked. And we see in the next verses in that same section, in that day, here it is again. What day is this? This is a day God chooses to intervene in human affairs in a dramatic way. And here it's going to be an intervention against Edom. And he says, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding, in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman. Now Teman was another city like Petra, only further south. Your warriors will be terrified. There's an interesting challenge there for us. Uh, 
it's not necessarily how many university degrees you might have. Timon may have been the place where they trained the army. And it's not going to matter how good your submarines are or how fast your jet fighters fly. Human knowledge, military might, don't always count. Because the Lord says, Esau's, everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. God is just. We are accountable for our actions. Evil destroys the wicked. But there's another dimension to the Lord's justice. Verses 10 to 14. Look at them in your Bible. Follow them. Verse 10. Why does this happen? Because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You were like some of those Babylonians who were having a bit of a game. Who wants this bit of Jerusalem? Who wants that bit of Jerusalem? And you were there just watching them, egging them on. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Were they standing up there on their mountain lookouts looking across and cheering on the Babylonians? Give it to them! We're responsible for our deeds. And as we go on in that section, verses 10 to 14, we get to verse 13. You should not march through the gates. You should not look down on them in their calamity or seize their wealth in the day of trouble. It's become worse. They're not only standing there cheering the Babylonians on, now they come and join them. They join them going into Jerusalem, sharing in the wealth, standing at the crossroads and cutting down the fugitives who are fleeing. We know what that's like. Thousands of people today fleeing for their lives while others cut them down. And you should not hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day, the day, the day, that awful day when God intervened in the life of Judah. But Edom, you can't stand on the side and just look on, supporting the Babylonians. They're your relatives and you care nothing about them. In fact, you join the Babylonians in the slaughter. 
That's the truth of the situation. Now up to this point it's a pretty sad story. It often is in the prophets. Read Jeremiah. Read Ezekiel. Terrible times. But are there not many in the world today who experience what for them are terrible times? Andrew White pleads with us to pray for the Christians in a city just recently taken over by the ISIS powers and they are beheading every Christian. Is that all the story of the prophets? Oh, the Lord's triumph, the third section, verses 15 and 16. We saw this verse before when we were talking about God's sovereignty. He does rule. He does determine history. And he says, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. And from our vantage point in history, we begin to see, boy, this is not only Edom. It's not only those other nations. It actually extends out and takes in the whole world. The day of the Lord is near and as you have done it will be done to you. Verse 16, just as you drank on my holy hill so all the nations will drink continuously. They joined the Babylonians and at the appropriate time they had a big, big celebration occasion and they drank and drank and the Edomites joined them. But in the Bible, often the drinking of a cup is a picture of an expression of God's judgement. Because ultimately God wins. And I think Obadiah is painting a picture here for these Edomite people. You drank and drank thinking you were having a great old time but the judgement of God comes and God is just and God wins. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he spoke about a cup and drinking it he asked the father if this cup could be taken from him but it wasn't he drank it the judgement of God fell on him we took a cup and we drank it but it was the cup of the new covenant God is a sovereign God committed to people. He expresses that commitment in the terms of the covenants. This is the new covenant. We who choose to follow him need never drink that dreaded cup of judgement. 
But Obadiah points out that these ones did. And he said the time will come as though they'd never been. Gone. God triumphs over his enemies. That's a gloomy path. But there's another side to this story. God delivers his people. But on Mount Zion there will be deliverance. Mount Zion was where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem had been wrecked by the Babylonians. But God is saying it will be restored. The story didn't end with exile in Babylon. The promise was you shall return. You'll come back to the land. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. All those descendants of Jacob, people of Israel, they will receive their inheritance. That inheritance that had been promised to them when they left Egypt. But the house of Jacob will be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. That's a repetition of the same thought. Something alive and burning. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Now when you put fire into stubble, the stubble is burned. And they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord, L-O-R-D, capitals, has spoken. And after about 1,500 years of history, Edom disappeared. But the exiles from Babylon returned. Those who chose to. Verses 17 to 21. What will this look like? He said, well now you know those lands and the people who occupied those lands and you were here and they were there and Edom was down south. Um, Do you know what? People will occupy the land of Edom. People from the Negev, now that was a desert area to the west of Edom they'll move across and they'll occupy that land. And some of the folk from here will go up north there to Zarephath that far and others will go northeast over into Gilead and others will go down onto the plains bordering the Mediterranean Sea and occupy the land of the Philistines. Those people will disappear. And God's people will occupy all of the land that God promised to them because God is sovereign. What he says he will do. God is just. Evil will not win. God will triumph and deliver his people. The view of Obadiah's little book wonder if you understand it a bit more now. The 
prophets were given visions going into the future because God wanted his people to know what he was going to be doing. He had a message for Edom but it reached beyond that. It was also a message for other nations. But it also reached beyond those other nations and it reached out to the coming of the one who would be the deliverer who would deliver the people from evil. And God's ultimate triumph will be when Jesus the Messiah, having come and established God's kingdom, returns to complete that kingdom. And so the little book of Obadiah gives us an introduction to all those other prophets and the messages they had, an immediate application, stretching out into a more distant application. But all was pointing on to the time when the Messiah would come. So those Old Testament prophets with those three common themes about God, his sovereignty, his justice, his triumph, it actually points us all to the time when all God's purposes will be fulfilled through Jesus. Now he is our prophet, our priest and our king. He had a message for all people. He spoke about God's sovereignty. Matthew 24 and 36. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, because he is sovereign. He knows that day. He knew all the other days when he would intervene in human history in dramatic ways. But there is one day left. That day. God knows it. In the book of Obadiah there isn't a date for the conquering of Edom. There isn't a date for the conquering of those other nations. But it happened. There isn't a date for the return of the Lord Jesus but it will happen. Jesus spoke about God's justice. He said, I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgement for every careless word they have spoken. As we have chosen, so we will be held accountable. Solemn thing, serious thing. But God is just. The truth will be revealed. And Jesus also spoke about the triumph of God. Then the king will say, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's God's kingdom. Do you know what? He has prepared the kingdom for us. That's why we come and worship him. Why we come and remember him. He is coming. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. And I'll come again and take you to be with me where I am in the prepared kingdom 
the glorious fulfilment of all God's purposes the ultimate day of God's triumph and he's committed to his people what a message from the prophets what a message from the Lord Jesus but Jesus also said you must be ready We don't know the date. But he urges us to be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. He is a God committed to his people. He does what he says. His word is sure. He is the sovereign God a just God, a magnificently triumphant God. Just keep your Bibles open somewhere in that little book. What has God been saying to you this morning? Let's just bow in prayer for a minute. I find this little book drives me to bow in God's presence and acknowledge how good and great and gracious he is. You might like to express your thoughts to him along that line. the Sovereign Lord. But maybe you haven't chosen yet to follow him, to obey him. We must be ready for that day in your heart speak to God he's committed to people ask him to receive you on the basis of what Jesus has done and add you to that number for whom the kingdom of heaven has been prepared might be helpful to tell someone after the service what you've done so that we could pray with you speak to me or one of the elders or a friend but be ready Father we, we are so thankful for the Bible we are thankful for the message of the prophets we are thankful for the Holy Spirit who instructs us as to what is truth. We are thankful for the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us and drank the cup that we need never drink. 
we worship you, we adore you, we commit ourselves again to you, so that however the world appears from our human perspective, you are sovereign. Justice and truth and righteousness will win. Your kingdom will come. All praise be unto you, now and for evermore. Amen.